I had an investor that had deep pockets that could invest virtually any amount that I wanted and take us to the level that we could even dream about. $20 million, he will put it in. Negotiation. For most of us, it's a stressful, high-stakes process. But some of the biggest moments in your life will be negotiations. So how do you get to the point where you're not only offered $20 million, but then you walk away from it? We're going to sign the agreement. You know, when after lunch, I said, you know what? The deal is off. We can do this deal. Negotiation would seem, by its nature, to be adversarial. It's you, it's me, and there's a desk in between. Mano a mano. I have what you want, and you have to take it from me. Whether it's a higher salary, a lower price, or a bigger investment. I win, you lose. That's the art of the deal. But what if that's wrong? Not only wrong, but harmful actively limiting your possibilities. Let me introduce you to one of the best negotiators I know. Yeah, so my name is uh, Charles Yeboa. Charles lives in Ghana, in the city of Kumasi. Kumasi is the second largest city in Ghana with right now probably about 3 million people. Uh, so if you think about Kumasi, you think about the Asante Kingdom, you think about timber, you think about gold, you think about the central market, you know, the largest in all of West Africa. I grew up in Ghana, uh, went to school in Abidjan, ended up in the States uh, for my master's and PhD, came back to Ghana in 98. Actually studied theology and uh, philosophy, so I was actually planning to become uh, a theologian, you know, teaching at the Baptist Seminary. You know, so school was not really a part of the game plan. That school that Charles is talking about is actually his business, International Community Schools. I was looking for a school for our daughter, who was then eight. Uh, we didn't find one that we really thought, you know, helped her transition back to Ghana. So we decided to start one. This was 1999, and the school that started uh, in our living room, with seven kids now, has become respected in Ghana with currently about close to 1,900 students spread on four campuses. We grew quite fast. So by September, we were about 25. We did some kind of open house. And then a year later, we were about 40, 50, we moved out. And it was at that time that we saw this appears to be something that may grow into something big. Two years later, we started looking into buying a permanent property in Kumase that we could, you know, build a future school on. As international community schools grew, Charles realized he would have to find external funding, either from a bank or institutional investors, and that meant negotiations. And when you want to learn about negotiations, there's one person you go to. My name is Margaret Neal. I go by Maggie. I am the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management Emerita at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. For the last 30 years, I have been studying synergy among human beings. And I do it usually within two contexts. Negotiation, how do we create and claim value? And also, how do we manage our teams for innovation? Margaret's the kind of person who'll tell you if there's food stuck in your teeth. 
She doesn't come across as a kind of ruthless shark that you might picture when you think of a master negotiator, because that's not how she approaches negotiation at all. Most folks think about negotiation as a fight, and that fight's characterized by, I'm gonna try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have, and I'm gonna try to keep you from getting my stuff. But if that's how you think about negotiation, you're already in an uphill climb. Because what that does is, when you have that mindset, it provides a filter through which you evaluate your counterpart's behavior. They're the other, they're the enemy, they're who's keeping you from getting what you want. So what I wanna suggest is that when you think about negotiation, number one, you expand your definition. You move beyond that simple negotiation is battle. To negotiation is a process. It's an opportunity for collaborative problem solving. So I'm fighting with my teenagers all the time, but maybe I need to recast that as collaborative problem solving. Well, that's the perspective to take. You wanna move away from negotiation as battle. I was an associate dean at the Graduate School of Business. So whenever I would engage with one of my colleagues, they would come into the meeting and they're already armored up. They're like, okay, I'm ready for that fight because you study negotiation, you write books in negotiation, you teach negotiation, this is a negotiation. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. No, no, no. I negotiate with people out there. But with you, it's collaborative problem solving. We've got to find a solution that works for both of us. So, for example, you can start the negotiation by throwing down an offer. And it turns out that's a really bad way to start a negotiation because that just raises all of these flags about zero-sum, battle mentality, fixed pie. So rather than that, start the negotiation with a conversation. Why are we here at the table? Why are you and I here at this table right now? What are we trying to achieve? How would we know what a good deal is, right? How would we know what a good solution is? What are the characteristics of that? What's important to you? And let me share what's important to me. We're in this together. Let's try to find a way right. to so make us both better off. You've conditioned them out of battle mode mm -hmm. so they hear you, they hear you. They're more likely to hear me, More yes. likely to hear you, that's fascinating. But now that they've read your book, they're gonna come in there, so they're gonna think, oh, she's gonna use that collaborative advantage Jedi mind trick on me. Yeah, they don't, they don't read my book. <laughs> <laughs> this style of negotiation might feel unfamiliar. So how can you tell if you're in a collaborative process or a battle? There are three factors that go into this collaborative problem-solving perspective. The first is, that think about yourself as the protagonist. Am I better off from engaging in this interaction? Now that may seem like a low bar. I mean, why would any reasonable person engage in an activity that would make them worse off? And yet, every one of us has, and we have taken an outcome that's made us worse off, and we knew it was gonna make us worse off, but we privileged agreement. So the first criteria is, is this likely to make me better off? The second one is, because there is no command and control in negotiation, I need to understand my counterpart, what motivates them, what their interests are, their preferences, their challenges, right? Because I've got to get them to voluntarily walk this path of agreement with me. But the third and the most important component is that when I make a proposal, I'm gonna frame that proposal as a solution to a problem that my counterpart has. See yourself as the protagonist. Understand your counterpart. Frame your proposal as a solution. 
I wanted to see if Margaret's factors resonated with Charles's real-world experiences. I, I can remember, you know, a chain of schools, gentleman who was in West Africa looking for schools to potentially partner with. And I think what even shocked him was that I knew what I wanted and that I was not particularly interested in just being part of a chain of schools that have so many campuses in South Africa. I wasn't necessarily interested in being just part of a great movement. I was interested to be aligned with somebody who shares our ethos and vision. And, you know, he thought that once he says, we are from South Africa, we have all these schools, I'll be so wowed that I would say, I want to be part of that. You know, and when he realized that is not what moved me, he didn't come back. So for me, I think you are thinking about the business you run and you are thinking about what is best for the business. But you're also thinking about what the person on the other side is thinking. I think you'll be hard pressed if you thought all about what you want to gain in this negotiation. They didn't think about what the other party may be thinking about. So for me, whether it's talking to a banker or talking to a potential equity investor, you think about what you want to achieve with that investment and what they want to achieve with that investment. And then you want to make sure that you marry the two aspirations. You need to calibrate a relationship to ensure that you can live together. It's like a marriage. If you can't live together, there's going to be a lot of problems in the business. They have to be able to hear the story. You have to be able to tell a story about where you started from and where you are going. And most investors, you know, want to know that you have an interesting future that they can buy into. And everybody wants to buy into, you know, a future success. You know, so if you, if you can tell that, articulate that, then it becomes easier for people to buy into it. In his own way, Charles has developed a similar framework to Margaret's. And one of the most empowering things about this approach is that it allows you to say no. You have this great quote, which I heard in one of your presentations, every bad deal you've ever gotten, you've agreed to. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the psychology of settling. Well. Negotiation is an interdependent decision process. Both of us have to say yes. So when you're confronted with a potentially bad outcome, if you say yes, you know exactly what you're gonna get, that bad outcome. But what I suggest is, is that you pause and you think, maybe this isn't a good outcome for me. Maybe my alternatives are better. Maybe walking away is the best option. Charles is a great example of how the deals you walk away from can be just as important as the deals you make. I want you to walk me through an example of a negotiation with an investor that didn't work out. Give me that story. Right after seed, when we made a decision- So 2014. 2014, that we were going to come to Accra. I had an investor that had deep pockets that could invest virtually any amount that I wanted and take us to the level that we could even dream about. But this investor wanted to turn ICS into a premium school. So that would mean that our fees would have to go up about four, probably about six times 
over a period of two years. And he will put in, if I want $20 million, he will put it in. So you have to decide whether you want big, glamorous campus that has only 200 kids, or you have equally good quality school for a greater number of people. It's a choice you have to make, right? You know, um, I remember I had to fly to London. We we're going to sign the agreement. He was actually shocked. You know, when after lunch I said, you know what? The deal is off. We can't do this deal. $20 million is a lot of money. They can do a lot. We definitely will be huge competitor. But that is not what we wanted at that time. Money is good. It can come to you at a later time without having to sacrifice your values. So I think this is a really crucial point. You were willing to pause on your long-term growth ambition rather than have it governed by an investor who was not aligned with that vision. Yeah. Even though in the end it was five or six years before you secured another investment of that size. There has been also two instances where I have signed an agreement and later have thought about it and said, no, 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 I think this was... This was too harsh, and I think we need to renegotiate. The ability to walk away from a deal is a key form of leverage. But how do you ensure that it's an option? For Margaret, it all comes down to preparation. One of the strong perspectives that I take in negotiation, there are three criteria that you need to have control of before you initiate a negotiation. And the first is understanding what your alternatives are. What happens to you in the case of an impasse? And there have been tons of research done on the impact of alternatives on negotiator performance. And while there's a lot of nuance in all of those studies, the main effect is clear. Those folks with the better alternative walk away with more in the negotiation. So if you're anchoring too low, you're gonna end up getting less than you should have. Well, what I'm, gonna, what I'm suggesting here is, is that my alternative determines where I anchor right? And if I have a really good alternative, then you're going to have to pay a premium for me to stay and play in this interaction. Otherwise, I can just walk. That renegotiation Charles mentioned, that was only possible because of his alternative. In 2006, when we had our first equity investor, quasi-equity investor, we had to renegotiate the whole term sheet. And I was able to do that, by the way, because in addition to their funds, I was also raising, you know, some debt, you know, funding from another source, and it was almost a done deal. So it was, I had something to fall back on, even if that one didn't go through. So they had no choice but to accept to renegotiate the term sheet, you know, with me. But just having an alternative isn't enough. When you say, you know, here's my alternative, and this is a standard by which I judge what's acceptable in our negotiation, I have just anchored myself to that alternative. I have limited the upside. And so rather than thinking about your alternative as a standard by which you judge acceptability, you should think about your alternative as a safety net. So it's kind of like if you were a trapeze artist and something happens in the middle of your act and you end up in the safety net, okay? Nobody would think that was an acceptable performance, right? It's like, no, that was not what you wanted. It was not what you were hoping for. But if you are in the safety net, you're really glad it's there. So the alternatives are outside the negotiation, but what's inside the negotiation is your reservation price. Your reservation price is your point of indifference between a yes and a no. 
And when I say indifference, I actually mean indifference. That is, if you are at your bottom line, you should be willing to flip a coin. And if it lands heads, you walk away. And if it lands tails, you say yes. That's how indifferent you need to be. It's a bright line standard that you do not violate. Sometimes the best options that are available to you are what you had before you started. So you need to know where's that point where this deal goes from being something I could say yes to, to something I should say no to. I, I wanna explore that a little more if I may. Because I think in some cases you might have a financial model that gives you a number that gives you a reservation price. But in other cases, the other party at the table is offering you all sorts of possibilities that can't be measured. They're hypotheticals. If we do this deal, you're gonna get this upside in three years. It's not in your spreadsheet, but I guarantee you that's where the market is heading. Mm -hmm. Does that muddy the waters with the coin flipping? No, what it says is, let's try to think about what that really means and what is the contingencies that need to be put into place. Because I guarantee you, you said, that this will happen in three years. That's fine, are you willing to bet on that? In his negotiations, Charles's quote-unquote reservation price wasn't just financial. It also reflected his values. So it's, a, it's a vision alignment. And so one of the things I, perhaps about negotiation is what can you let go and what can't you let go? It's not every money that you want on your table. It is money that is aligned with your vision. And I think it's critical, you know, that you know what you want and to what extent you are willing to go to make sure that uh, even if you are going to be diluted, that you are not over-diluted. That idea of knowing what you want is what rounds out Margaret's negotiation prep. Aspirations are critical because one of the things we know, again, from massive amounts of research, is that our expectations affect our behavior. So if you think about your alternative, it's your safety net, and your reservation price is the worst possible deal you can say yes to. So what you need to do, because those are setting your expectations, but they're at the bad end of the agreement, you need to set an aspiration an optimistic assessment of what you could achieve in this negotiation. When I talk about optimistic assessment, it's not a number you throw out that you don't have any commitment to. You have done your homework. You've thought about your position, your strengths, your weaknesses, the environment you're in, your counterpart, their strengths and weaknesses, and said, if things went really well, what could I hope to get? You're probably not gonna reach it. But by setting an aspiration, on average, you will do better. Most folks do not set an aspiration and they don't understand how powerful it is to set this optimistic assessment. It's funny because it almost shocks me that that's a common mistake because why are you entering a negotiation if you don't know what you want? People do it all the time. They have these rules, I want more. What does that mean? Do you want more of everything? Do you want more of this thing or that thing? The common mistake is people walk into a negotiation having not thought systematically about any of those factors, not alternatives, not reservation prices, and certainly not aspirations. And what distinguishes successful negotiators from their less successful counterparts is the quality of their preparation. Preparation is key in negotiations. Once you've prepared, you actually have to do the damn thing. And there's plenty of so-called rules out there for how to negotiate. I wanted to find out which of those were backed up by actual research findings. 
And by research, I don't mean your aunt's cousin on Facebook. I'm gonna play the true or false game. Okay. True or false, it is better to negotiate issue by issue. Absolutely not. This is one of the big fallacies in negotiation. Most of us look at negotiating issue by issue as making it easier. Reach a deal on an issue, you put it aside. You reach a deal on another issue, you put it aside. Now it's harder to walk away. What you're doing is it's an irrational escalation of commitment, right? So I can't walk away because I've already got two issues of, of eight done. But secondly, what happens is we have to choose which issue to work on, and we usually go with what we think are the easiest issues first. Solve the easy issues first. And this is a bad strategy. What makes you think that my easy issues are your easy issues? If I solve an issue that's easy for me, but it turns out to be really important for you, I've lost a degree of freedom that I could have used to make a trade. You give away leverage. Without getting something in return. Yeah. That's interesting. So part of what is a strong recommendation is to really think about negotiating at the package level. So think about all the issues. Crafting a package that reflects our unique contribution. So true or false, whoever speaks first loses. Well, sometimes. <laughs> Turns out that on average, about 80% of folks think that the better outcome is to receive the first offer. And they do so because they are believing that they get an information advantage. And I may learn when I receive the first offer that you may value the issues quite a bit differently than I do. Or I might even learn that you have no clue what you're talking about. So that's a reason why you might receive the first offer. But the counter is also powerful. That is making the first offer. And when I make the first offer, I get to set the standard of where we start. Watch what happens just by making an offer. So I make an offer to you. Is it closer to your reservation price or to your aspiration price? What do you think? I'm guessing it's closer to my reservation price. Yes. When I make the first offer to you, is it closer to my aspiration or my reservation? Aspiration. So at the moment, when I make a first offer and you hear it, your mind and your expectations move to reservation price. My mind is still in aspiration land. So by simply making the first offer, not only do I set the anchor, but I subtly suppress your levels of expectation while keeping mine at the aspirational level. Being honest is the best approach when negotiating with a third party, true or false? So I'm pretty clear that I don't lie in my negotiations. But that doesn't mean I tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth all the time. And the reason I choose that course of action is because it's important for me to not be caught in my lies. But also, there's sometimes when I tell the truth, you don't believe me. And then what have I got? So let me give you an example. Reservation prices, bottom lines. How many times have you been in a negotiation where someone has said to you, okay, let's just cut to the chase. What's your bottom line? Every car I ever bought. Right. <laughs> so let's say that you and I are negotiating, you ask me that, and I give you a number. Here's my bottom line. Number one, truthfully, do you believe me? Yeah, usually not. So you don't believe me because you say, why would anybody, why would any reasonable person tell me their true bottom line? What you've given me is your faux bottom line. Right. And there's still movement. Ah.
Charles certainly keeps some of his cards close to his chest. You mentioned this one case where you had an alternative to equity in the form of some type of loan, and you had that in your back pocket. So when you go into a negotiation, is there important information that you don't share, at least at the outset? I knew this particular you know, debt finance was going to take much longer. They didn't know that. Uh, so I wouldn't tell them that it was going to take a year for me to, they just needed to know that I have that. As a way of letting them know, if it doesn't take hours, he's going to get this money. You know, but I didn't need to tell them how long this was going to take, because then that would have given them an upper hand. Well, if we don't give it to him, he's going to be in big trouble. Sharing some aspect of the information was good, but at the same time, it was good not to share certain aspect of the information. Because I think when people know already, um, either they can hit holes at it, or you may be getting what they give you when you could even get better than what somebody else, you know, had offered. You know, so sometimes it's good to keep it, you know, to yourself and not share. When I'm negotiating, I should not show emotion. True or false? False. Because when I show emotion, regardless of whether that emotion is true or strategic, my counterpart is very likely to believe it is true. But we've all seen examples on television of lawyers acting strategically, you know, acting really angry, but they're really not, right? So we think emotions reflect. The other point is, how do we decide what we want? And it turns out that emotions are huge clues that we have about our preferences. Are you saying that if I suppress my emotions, I'll have a harder time understanding my aspiration? If you suppress your emotions, not only will you have a harder time knowing what you want, but your counterpart will also be put off by that. And not because what happens is when you spend all that emotional energy suppressing your emotion, you suppress a whole lot more. And so they think you're more aggressive. They think you are more separate from. More they, secretive. You basically are just unreadable because you're suppressing everything. That's interesting. That's counterintuitive to what I, I thought. There are times that you need to be strong. You need people to know that, you know, I'm not going back on this one. So the time to be emotional, to be, I think the word you use, to be strong, is in the non-negotiables. Those things that you cannot give away. Yeah. So it's, I don't know if that means strong means heated and emotional or just firm and clear. Firm and clear and standing your ground and saying, this one, I'm not giving up on that. You know, every investor wants far more returns than you are willing to give them. And so sometimes, you know, even when they know what they're asking for is unreasonable, they will still ask for it until you are able to say, you know, this one, you are not getting it because I'm not going to give it, you know. True or false, recurring negotiations are different than one-offs. Absolutely. For example, in the latter, the future, there's an opportunity for reputation to have an impact. A one-off negotiation, reputation is, is not really that important because at least my economist colleagues would argue that reputation is a function of future cooperation. Reputation exists to make future interactions cooperative. If there's no future interactions, why not? I'll tell you a quick story about one of my deans in one of the schools I was a faculty member in. 
he was a big builder dean. He built lots, he built three buildings over the course of his deanship. And surprisingly, in the first two, they were under budget and on time. And I mean, who does a construction project and it's under budget and on time? The third building he built with the same people, so the same builders did all three. In the middle of the building process, he announced that he was stepping down as dean. Same builders, but now that project was over budget and way late. Why? There was no tomorrow for the builder. So they're gonna take their scarce resources and apply them elsewhere. There's no reason to do it here because there's no tomorrow with this person. As Charles learned, even when you've agreed to terms, the negotiations may not be over. It was a time that the school needed cash, you know, um, the Accra campus has started. We're looking into the future. I had walked out of this deal in London and this is now the next person on the table. I think I didn't do a good job comparing the term sheet that I signed with the business agreements you know, that, was, that, that were put together you know, later. Investors have a fine way of sneaking certain things in that was not you know, in the original term sheet that you almost have to read if you can page by page or have somebody look at it for you. And I have learned that you don't quickly go to a lawyer to look at a business deal until you have actually gotten the business deal, you know, in your comfort zone. So the mistake, as I understand it, in this case, you yourself didn't fully understand what was in the term sheet. So you were negotiating without enough information. I think I did understand the term sheet, but you know, after you've signed a term sheet, term sheet is just about two, three pages at most. And then you have a business agreement, shareholders agreement, you know, that could go for about 200 pages. And that is where usually the problem is. It is so easy to understand three pages and to read it thoroughly. And it is a totally different thing to understand 200 pages. In writing the business agreement, there are phrases, you know, for example, the investor comes in, do evaluation of your school, and he says, your school is worth 1 million cities. And then he says, I'm bringing an equivalent of, say, 1.5 million cities into the school, but it's in euros. But there is a catch-22 in that. And the catch-22 that I later found out is that because he is investing in hard currencies, any time he dropped his money, the city had depreciated, so he gained value. By the time I woke up, his value had gone way up because he's taking advantage of the time of his investment to gain value over you. That is something that sometimes is difficult to see ahead of time until it's happened. So in other words, you had no exchange rate protection if the CD was depreciating. Yeah. No matter how collaborative the process, negotiation can still feel intimidating. But Margaret has some tools for lowering the stakes. I'm struck by how much of your advice is about actually setting your own mindset, mm -hmm. about taking care of your own psychological mm -hmm. perspective when you walk in the room, as much as anything. Building on that, 
Are there exercises for entrepreneurs that you can recommend for them to sort of get that negotiation mindset? Well, one of the things that I think we way undervalue is the power of the ask. And I am a real proponent of asking folks for what it is you want. Because if you don't ask for what you want, how will your counterparts know what it is you want? If I don't ask for what I want, who will? So number one, ask for what you want and realize that we dramatically underestimate people's willingness to comply with our requests. People are actually much more willing to accommodate our requests than we think they are. The second thing I would do is find negotiation situations where it's not dangerous. The first assignment that I give my MBA students when they are in a negotiation class with me, I say, okay, here's your assignment. Go out into the 48 contiguous United States and I want you to purchase something that is a fixed price item. And I want you to bring back proof and the item that you have purchased it for less than the fixed price. And they're like apoplectic. They're like, you can't, you do, can't that. do that here. <laughs> exactly. And about 85% are successful because it turns out this is a really easy exercise because it turns out people do accommodate our asks. I think that part of the goal in any of these exercises is to make this notion of figuring out what your alternative reservation and aspiration price are is second nature to you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the practice is about. And it's practiced in a variety of different situations. Every time you have a meeting, you're, if you're in a meeting and you want to have influence, it's an opportunity for collaborative problem solving, for negotiation. And it's the mindset and the practice together. That formula of mindset and practice is powerful. It's how Charles has grown his school from just seven students in his living room to almost 2,000 across Ghana. How did you get the confidence to do all of this? How do you, and how do you demonstrate that competence when you walk into a room? I think it comes over time. If you've done it before, it builds your confidence level that you can do it again. You know, so I think success always begets success, like we say. So once you've been successful once, you kind of gain confidence. Well, I've done it before. I guess I can do it again. And then just realize, I think I can, I can do it better, you know, next time. You just have to have the confidence to face the next person and be sure that you can get what you want and allow him or her to get what he or she wants also. So it's not always what you want to achieve, but what he also can get. So what have we learned? Most importantly, we have to redefine negotiation. Instead of adversarial, can it be collaborative? Instead of a battle, can we solve each other's problems? And if a negotiation doesn't provide a good solution to your problem, don't be afraid to walk away. No deal is better than a bad deal. The right preparation will give you the tools to evaluate a good deal and the confidence to say no to a bad one. So don't go into a negotiation without knowing your alternatives, your reservation price, and your aspiration price. Keep your mission in mind when you're negotiating. Make sure you're not compromising your vision and your values, because those things can't be bought. If you found this episode interesting, you'll be excited to learn that our guest, Professor Margaret Neal, is leading a week-long intensive program at Stanford on this very topic. The Influence and Negotiation Strategies Program 
will help you build practical skills for negotiation based on proven methods. Most importantly, you'll get valuable practice actively negotiating with your peers so you can identify your weaknesses, grow your strengths, and become more comfortable asking for what you want. The program runs in person here at Stanford University in California from October 2nd to 7th. There is limited space and the deadline to apply is September 1st, so don't wait. And to find out more, visit the link in our show notes. I'd like to thank Charles Yaboa for his time with us and for sticking to his values in his negotiations. And I'd also like to thank Professor Margaret Neal for collaboratively problem solving with us. This has been Grit and Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Lori Fuller and Erica Amoake Ajay researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Ganim and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.